Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. People, give me just a few seconds here. I want to talk about Shuko USA, our sponsor for this episode of the Skins Podcast the door window and facade system provider of Shuko products here in North America, featuring German engineering made in America. Operating Shuko doors and windows is like operating a high-performance German automobile. Quite satisfying. Shuko's diverse window, door, and facade systems not only provide best-in-class thermal and acoustical performance, but are tested and certified in accordance with AMA, NFRC, ADA, UL, and Miami-Dade hurricane standards. With literally unbeatable thermal and acoustical performance, they even have window systems that meet demanding passive house standards. Check out a Shuko thermal break sometime and compare it with the competition. Their network of trained and certified glazing contractors ensures that their systems are properly installed, commissioned, and serviced. If you design or specify facade systems and components, you need to know Shuko. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Facade Tectonics skins podcast this is mick patterson the ambassador of innovation and collaboration with the facade tectonics institute among other things this is the the latest in the series that i'm doing with uh my co-host ted kessick ted is is a professor at the university of toronto a professor of building science and with us today uh, we have David DeRose, Managing Principal with Synergy Partners. Uh, he's also a part-time professor at Ryerson University. And we have Jennifer C. with uh, Videris in New York City. She is a registered architect. Um, Videris is a multidisciplinary consultancy in New York City. Jen has a facade specialty there. So how you, how you guys doing today? Everybody good? Fantastic. Great. Happy to be here. It's uh, and I'm really happy to have you here. Very excited about this, Ted. Uh, listen, I learned we got our topic today is durability. One of my favorite topics, uh, if not my favorite topic, and every almost everything, if not everything that I've learned about durability, I learned from you. So I'm very excited about you know about this topic, about you know having your leadership in this conversation. Uh, the work that you've done in the area of durability uh, it, it inspired me um, in many ways. Uh, so I want to hand this off to you. Lead us, take us there, you know, fearless leader. <laughs> well, thanks for having me back again. I guess I didn't screw up too badly the last time, so I'm back, and that's always a good sign. I, I just wanted to sort of uh, uh, very briefly uh, touch on some of the uh, dynamics of the, the, the podcast subjects that we're going to be exploring today, uh, just because, as we know, I think most of us know that when it comes to, uh, you know, issues of uh, sustainability and performance and buildings, that it's really the passive systems that uh, dominate and, and give buildings their, um, their, their, their uh, sustainability, their resilience. And, of course, the facade in particular, the enclosure, is probably the biggest contributor to the passive performance of building systems. And so the facade is everything. It's the skin. And, and in one way, in the same way that our skin is like the most important organ of our body, a lot of people don't know that, but it's true from a medical point of view, the skin on a building is the most important part of all of the passive systems. And so in, in a time when we're trying to do things like reduce the uh, 
carbon footprint of uh, our buildings, reduce the embodied carbon in the materials that make up our buildings, and give them higher performance in a whole bunch of different ways, both in terms of energy efficiency, but also comfort, and then the resilience, uh, so so they can so they can uh, withstand extreme weather events, and and then durability. So. So these things are all connected together, and and what I was hoping we could have a, a discussion about because we know that skins are becoming increasingly important in in the design of uh, of uh, high performance buildings, and um, so so durability is sort of there in the sense that it's the one thing that is very very tough for us to have to upgrade or replace in a building, and and for that reason. We would really like to get it right, and and not only do we want to get it right, but we want to have something that we can periodically, perhaps, uh, refresh, maintain, uh, update in some fashion, uh, so that its performance stays fairly high, that it doesn't deteriorate over time. So again, the durability is is sort of an implication. I was just going to um, kick it off. I wanted to start with the architectural perspective, and and so so so. Given what's happening in, in New York City, I just wanted to talk about how are people approaching the durability issue with uh, facades in, in, in that architectural community, which is one of the major architectural communities in North America. You know, uh, we can start with the building code, right? Um, building code doesn't necessarily address durability. Um, but, you know, what we, I mean... In terms of maintenance, what we do have in the city here for existing buildings is a facade inspection program that the city does mandate every five years or so, right, by a professional um, to basically say that the, your facade is safe or, you know, or certain things or identify certain things that need to be maintained. And if there are any, you know, unsafe conditions, you know, flag those conditions to the Department of Buildings as well. All right. So this it's um, it's um, something that is done every five years so that the buildings can be regularly maintained. Right. And as as you know, unfortunately, you know, accidents do happen. Right. With, you know, aging you know, ornamentation on the facade or, you know, other items that, you know, fall off. Those events often result in, you know, changes to the uh, legislation, to, to the requirements, right? So the, the, it's, it's an evolving thing, right? But right now the program is, you know, every five years and um, there has to be some aspect of up close, hands-on, um, looking at it from a lift or, or scaffold. So, Jen, the last time I was in New York City, there was almost every single building had overhead scaffolding. Uh, is that, still, yeah. is that yeah. still permitted in view of doing your inspections? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's required. <laughs> the sidewalk sheds are, you know, depending on what type of work or maintenance is being done, then um, you're required to have a sidewalk shed to protect the public. I thought they were using that to avoid doing the inspections. Oh, well, that's the other, <laughs> that's the other um, opposite side of the spectrum is, you know, if there are in fact unsafe conditions on the building, then you're required to put up a sidewalk shed, you know, to protect the public. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, it's funny though. I mean, the pedestrian environment in New York City has been significantly impacted by the requirement for those, you call them sheds, Jen? 
Yeah. Yeah. Sidewalk sheds. Yeah. Extensive scaffolding, uh, you know, to the point where as a pedestrian, there's a, a lot of the building that you, you can't even see, right? Without, <laughs> you know, some kind of effort. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions I have then is, is um, and, and I'll ask this one of Dave. So, because I just want to get an idea, you know, and when, when, when I ask this question, I know it's a loaded question, so I'm not expecting anybody to give me an exact number. But going from, let's say, the low end to the high end, what kind of what we would call useful service life are we generally thinking of when we're designing a facade system? You're right. That's a very loaded question there, Ted. Thanks for asking that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the way I'm going to answer it very diplomatically in that I was the vice chair for CSA S478, which is Durability and Standards. It's a new standard in Canada that came out in 2019. And we debated uh, many of the the concepts within the standard. The standard was written in uh, mandatory language. It took over for the the older guideline. But in 2019, we reissued it as a standard with mandatory language and we had to have criteria in there for service lives service life uh, not just for buildings but for the building envelope components or elements as, as we refer to them so we debated it at length and what we ended up going with in the standard uh, was depending on the category of the type of building uh, we would have minimum requirements for the building so let's say you know, there would be everything from temporary buildings to long life buildings to monumental buildings, lots of categories. So let's say in, you know, the typical category that a lot, you know, in terms of the sandbox that a lot of us play in would probably be the long life buildings. And in a long life building, a recommended selected range for the building itself is 50 to 99 years. And we had to put a minimum on it because if you don't put a minimum, then when you're well, when, when buildings are being built by, you know, developers who might be turning the building over in a condominium type style, you, we have to protect that type of, uh, of building as well. So there was a minimum requirement in mind. And for long life, the minimum requirement, let's say, would be 50 years. So then when it comes to actual building envelope elements, the service life of the building envelope elements would be a function of that overall building service life. So, and... It really depends on, the main things it depends on would be access and the consequences of failure. So on the one hand, if I have wraparound balconies on a building and I can easily go up the elevator, through the doors, onto a balcony and get to the building envelope, that's one kind of access. If I need specialized swing stages, mass climbers, that's another kind of access. But the most important kind of access is once I'm confronted right in front of that facade element, the element that I'm trying to fix, is it close to the surface or do I got to peel off a whole bunch of different layers in order just to get to it? So that's number one is access. And there's many ways you can look at access. The next main thing is the consequences of failure. So if there's an issue, is it a loss of performance, maybe a loss of our value, or is it a safety issue, right? So there's different consequences of failure. And depending, when you look at all that together, we, we put it all nicely together in a table. And based on access and based on consequences of failure, the function of the overall building service life would either be, for the building element, would either be 25%, 50%, or 100%. So, uh, you know, in the case of a long life building, we're either looking at, you know, 12 and a half years, 25 years, or 50 years. If it's something that's buried deep in a wall uh, and it's uh, the consequences of failures, it might be a safety issue, then absolutely, it's, it, it has to last the life of the building. So... So uh, a complex question 
unfortunately deserves a complex answer. <laughs> so it kind of depends. And it depends on the building service life, the type of building, the consequences of failure, and the access to the different elements. Yes, and I think that's one of the reasons that I that that I believe that that the the, the CSA uh, S four seventy eight standard that uh, came out in twenty nineteen is is what I call a good standard because it's actually it's qualifying uh, the different things that determine how we would establish a minimum uh, durability and service life design service life, and I'm noticing and looking here, and I guess it's uh, really it's a bit of a judgment call, but. When I start looking at this table that's in here, there's categories of failure. It's table two in the standard. And it tells you, um, you know, basically based on the consequences of failure and so on, how long things should last. And so you get to when you see things like risk to health and safety of building users, injury, loss of life or loss of asset and prohibitive repair costs, these all then flip you over and you have to uh, get 100 percent of building design service life in that particular component. So in this case, for the type of buildings that are sort of what the ones that Dave was talking about means 50 years. So so you have to have something that's going to give you a, a, a good service life uh, for 50 years. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no maintenance. And this is one thing I wanted to get clarified. That doesn't mean that there's no maintenance required over that 50 year period. Is that right? Uh, well, it depends. <laughs> it depends. If the if the uh, elements are readily accessible and can be easily replaced, then once again it falls under the you know either the the twenty five percent or the fifty percent. But if something's buried in a wall, then it would fall it would fall under the hundred percent of the service life. I'll give you I'll give you a story uh, if, if you if you don't mind. So I call it my M and M story. All right. So this is, I was working on a university facility. Ted, you'd be familiar with the facility that I'm going to be referring to. But it's in uh, University of Toronto, eight-story building, new engineering building. And the lower two floors of the of the building uh, were high-span curtain wall. And then above that, the upper six stories are alternating vertical bands of precast uh, and curtain wall. And the precast concrete assemblies, or that wall assembly, is a... Uh, you know, it was intended to be a veneer assembly. So a precast concrete veneer starting from the outside, airspace, eight inches of mineral wall because Ted was involved in the beginning. So we went with eight inches of mineral wall. Then there was a uh, water resistive barrier and air barrier uh, membrane. Then there was either uh, block backup or reinforced concrete block back, uh, reinforced concrete backup, sorry. So in this instance, where the precast panels were, the precast had to go in First, because the precast subtrade made a big fuss about the fact that uh, they didn't want the curtain wall ribbons going in first and then having these swinging these big panels around and maybe smashing into the glass. So the precast had to go in first. So as a result, we ended up having to do this very tricky detail uh, air seal between the, you know, the, the sides, let's say the jams of the curtain wall and the sides of the, the precast wall assembly. But to make a... Uh, to get more to the point, we had this behind the precast panels. We had this six-story tall cavity where if any water got past the outer veneer, it would come all the way down onto head of our two-story high-span curtain wall. So we needed a flashing detail. We needed through all flashing. But, you know, just to make it a little more complicated, we had these precast sunshade elements, vertical, horizontal, that also penetrated right through these flashing elements. 
So we had not only was it a difficult detail to detail, but we had, you know, tricky silicone strips had to be put in around all of these precast uh, concrete connection penetrations, let's say. So here's a situation where we call it, you know, where we have this through wall flashing uh, at the bottom of this six story vertical run of precast panels, you know, draining and supposed to kick out water on top of our curtain wall. We have, you know, our air seals around these uh, precast penetrations. And the reason I call it the, the M&M detail is because we only got one shot, right? We got one opportunity to get this right. Because once those big precast panels go in, nobody's ever going to take these precast panels off in order to try to fix either an issue with that flashing or an issue with, uh, you know, strips of silicone that were around the penetrations that might be leaking air into the cavity. So there was no way we were ever going to have access to that again. So that would be a situation where you would need that detail would need to meet the service life of the building because you're never going to have access to it again. So in that instance, because there were only 12 of these flashings on one side of the building and 12 of these flashings on the other side of the building, only 24 total, what I told the glazing contractor is we're going to water test every one before we put these panels in. And of course, the glazing contractor flew off the handle and said, no way, there's no way we're going to test uh, and 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 you know, do a water test in this situation where the screen of the rain screen isn't even in place. And I said, well, I'm not sure why you're worried. Like this was a two stories up in the air, high span curtain wall from the inside, didn't even have the access to build a chamber. I said, it's not as if we're going to put a pressure difference on this. We're just going to use a calibrated nozzle. I'm just looking for holes. I'm just looking for holes either in the flashing, looking for holes in the silicone sheets around the penetrations. And once we assure ourselves that there's no holes, you can put the precast panels in or they can put the precast panels in. So he reluctantly went along with it. Once, uh, you know, we test the first one with a calibrated nozzle, fails right away. And he says to me, see, told you, you can't test uh, without the screen in place. And I said, what are you talking about? There's not even a pressure difference here. Like there's no reason if the membranes were continuous, no reason why this shouldn't have passed a simple calibrated nozzle test without the screen in place. So as I alluded to earlier, a bit of a tricky detail to get from the shoulder of the curtain wall back to the membrane on the wall behind the precast. So what we had, to, what we did is we we did a membrane in the plant on the curtain wall. We ended up doing a combination of membranes and angles. And then on the wall uh, behind the precast, I had an angle so that once everything was in from the inside, we would go in with another angle closure to go from the angle that was on the wall to the angle that was screwed to the side of the curtain wall to make our primary or final air and water seal buried deep in the system. So as a, because of that detailing that had to be done in the plant, they had run their membrane with a, you know, I, I requested a termination seal at the end of the membrane as it ended into the shoulder. And then they covered it with a trim. Uh, and because they covered it with the trim, we ended up having a problem because we, when we took it all apart to figure out why this thing failed right away, we ended up finding that the, sil the sealant, sorry, that they used in the shoulder of the curtain wall as the termination seal on the membrane was a solvent-rich sealant. And because it was covered right away in the plant with this metal trim detail, the solvents weren't able to be released. The sealant never cured. So if it wasn't for, you know, our, you know, being very meticulous about having, uh, you know, uh, extra attention, let's say, to this detail, because we were never going to have access again, we wouldn't have found that. And there would have been some big issues because we caught it early. A lot of the modules were still in the plant. We were able to make the repairs. We were able to, you know, put the proper termination seals in that would cured and so forth. So, you know, 
kind of a bit of a long-winded story there, but I think it just enhances the uh, the whole notion that if something is going to be inaccessible, you got to pay a lot more attention to it. And if something's closer to the surface and very easily uh, interchangeable or, or repaired or maintained, then it can have a, a lower uh, service life. Okay, that's that's exactly a perfect thing that you've explained here because now we understand why this is such a nasty subject area and it's and, and I want Jen's perspective on this so so here you are what do you make of, of this type of attention to detail in order to have to get the durability right is that something that's that's challenging for you in New York City or 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 is the American system a little different because you tend to engage in a lot more litigation and so people tend to really, really be careful that they don't screw up. Yeah, no, I think here in New York City, it's a very litigious nature here. <laughs> so, you know, luckily, um, many times, you know, um, developers or owners do bring on facade consultants like ourselves, but there are plenty of buildings that go up that don't have somebody like us, you know, making sure that the details are all done properly and also that they're fabricated and installed correctly, right? Because uh, we can detail the heck out of um, you know the system, but if it's not assembled correctly, or if it's not you know in the sh- in the fabrication shop, or uh, not constructed properly in the field, you know it it um it it really matter, right? And um, you know it's something that we actually do spend a lot of time on when we work with manufacturers and looking at their system details is constructability, right? Making sure there's access to do, you know, all the air seals and water seals that they're, um, that they're planning on doing and um, yeah, making sure it's constructible and um, accessible. But I think like also what I wanted to, what, what um, kind of popped into my mind as uh, David was talking was, you know, um, here we do a lot of unitized systems Right. Um, you know, uh, we, um, our company works a lot on, you know, uh, mid, you know, high rise buildings. And, um, you know, we, I think we all probably agree that, um, you know, unitized systems, there's a high level, there can be a high level, um, the quality of a unitized systems is often perceived to be better because of the high level of QC, QAQC that can be employed in the fabrication shops, right? Minimizing your, the work that's done in the field and uh, maximizing that in fabrication shops where the uh, conditions are um, optimal, right? Um, but, you know, accessible versus non-accessible, I think, you know, when you start talking about unitized systems like curtain wall, um, and similar, a lot of the seals that are integral to the performance of these systems are concealed, right? And, um, you know, you have joinery seals where the mullions um, come together and, you know, where you have um, uh, back pans that are sealed, but it's a few inches away from the exterior face of the system and not quite accessible, Um and then, you know, you also have the structural sealant that holds the glass in and the gasketing where the panels come together. So I would say, yes, some of those seals could probably be maintained in the future, but some would be a lot more um, invade or require a lot more, um, you know, like manipul- uh, opening up the system, like getting into the guts of it in order to repair. 
I'm glad, actually, I'm glad, I'm glad that you brought that up, Jen, because, you know, we, my, with my company, we fix a lot of uh, curtain walls in the city here. And there are some of these unitized type systems where uh, we can't even get to the gaskets, let's say, at the interlocks between some of these coupled mullions. So very difficult to repair. Uh, but there's some on the market that even though maybe the gasket is buried, the joint is situated in such a way that we can easily put in a low modulus, uh, ultra low modulus silicone sealant in a fillet bead type of configuration to cover over that gasket to act as a redundant seal or, or a, re a replacement seal in the event that there's an issue with that gasket. So one of the trends we're also getting asked to help out with is these large format kind of mega panels that use curtain wall technology around the perimeters with interlocking gaskets. And one of the things that I tell people or uh, manufacturers that ask me for advice is, well, when it gets to the joints, let's think of a way, let's either think of a way that we can make them accessible, or I show them examples of some of the older Kernwall systems that do have at least the joints accessible, where we could put in, let's say, a sealant retrofit bead if we had to. So I show them some of those types of details and say, let's lean this way so that if there's an issue, at least we can access these seals and, and either, you know, augment them or, or, you know, put in these additional seals and so forth, or let's come up with a different way of doing it so we can replace some of these gaskets. But let's not try to duplicate some of these other unitized systems from the past where I can't even fix the gaskets because I can't even get to them. They're so buried in the system and I can't put a retrofit seal on some of these because the where the joint is accessible and where the gasket is, sometimes they're an inch or two away. And by putting a seal an inch or two away, I might actually be trapping water in the system by putting in that right. retrofit seal. So I'm glad you brought that up because uh, it's something that we need to deal with, with some of these me this mega wall or large format panel type of, uh, uh, of configurations. If we're going to truly build things that are, you know, elements and, and, and systems that are durable and maintainable and so forth. Well, I'm just trying to think if we're, if we're thinking that we're going to put up, let's say, unitized curtain wall systems that are going to give us a 50-year lifespan, a service lifespan. And that, that doesn't mean, for me, that doesn't mean that at the end of 50 years, you have to rip it off and put up a new facade. At least I hope that's not what it exactly. is. Exactly, exactly. So, so the question, and, and this is something that intrigues me, uh, just because I think of other things in this world that we have to do, like the analogy that I'm always dealing with that I use when I'm trying to teach this concept to students is I said, Imagine if you had to like take apart three quarters of your car in order to be able to change the tires. I said, you'll notice that when they engineered cars and they knew that there was this part that was going to wear out and it's called a tire, but they made it so that five or six bolts later, this tire and rim came off and you could change the tire and put it back on. It was an easy thing to do. Look at how the brake pads work and so on. So this thing- You even carried a spare. Yeah. And, and so I'm just thinking- what was the thinking? How did we get to the point where people were throwing up on such large-scale buildings these uh, facades knowing, or they should have known, that there's not a chance in hell you could ever go back and do anything with them when, when they finally start to deteriorate and leak? Like I just am, um, I, I would think of all the things on the building, this would be the one thing that you would engineer so that you could every... 25, 40, 50 years go and say, I want to redo the ceiling of this and it's going to actually work. I mean, so, so have, Dave, have you seen systems that, that are 
uh, actually now starting to be engineered for a long service life that you can go in and change stuff out? Or is that still a pipe dream? Uh, in terms of the the gaskets, in terms of gaskets between, let's say, interlock firmware systems, I still haven't seen where you can, you know, easily swap out and take out an air seal, concealed air seal gasket and put in a new one. But like I said, I have seen systems where at least the joint is accessible in a configuration where I could put a retrofit sealant bead right over the gasket so I don't need the gasket anymore. My sealant is going to take over for the, the air and water seal over that joint. So I try to, as a minimum, push that type of configuration where at least I can get to the joint to seal the joint because I can't replace the gasket. But th- I guess that would be like the holy grail would be finding a way to do all of those nested systems and still being able to replace your gaskets. Like, you know, that would be if somebody came up with that, that would that would be fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, 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 go ahead, Jen. Yeah, there's there's a few sides to this, right? So, um, you know, there are you know systems that are gasketed, and you know the one of the huge benefits as to why those are selected is quickness of installation, right? And many times it's you know it's different the building typology, um, I guess, factors into that. You know, if if it's rental versus if it's you know condo or you know, if the building is sold off to somebody else after it's constructed, it might be a different approach as um, compared to if it's a building that's held on by a building owner and then rented out because they're the, they're the actual ones doing the maintenance, right? But you know, in terms of like when this when these systems actually get installed, you know, caulking. I mean, like um, you know, as we're talking through this, it's very apparent that, you know, get the gasket systems, even though they go in very quickly, right, it's difficult to uh, retrofit in the future, whereas the systems that have caulk perimeters, um, you know, between panels, like, uh, I guess, like you can say, like a precast, um, a precast system where it's usually a caulk joint, right, that actually gets easier to um, maintain, right, because you're just cutting the caulking out and like basically replacing in kind. If you can get to it. Right. I mean, some of these unitized systems, you know, structurally glazed unitized systems, it's difficult to even get to that car joint in some designs. Well, here's the thing. So, and I just wanted to bring it up. So, you know, because it's something that's always fascinated me. And I realized that I think I know the answer. I think most of us know the answer, but I'll go there anyway. So um, when they did the restoration on the uh, Empire State Building, of course, it basically had punched window technology, right? The, the, the facade was really a sort of a hybrid, but I mean, it, it, it used um, punched windows as opposed to curtain walls because of the era in which it was constructed. And uh, it had up to that point a 60-year service life, uh, and it seemed to be doing not too badly, but it wasn't energy efficient, so they ended up doing that. And I'm just wondering if there's ever an appetite to return to something like that where you know, changing out a window isn't the end of the world versus I, I'm, I'm always still amazed that curtain walls have gained their the popularity that they have, knowing sort of that you, you've got this ticking time bomb in terms of eventually this thing is going to have to be completely replaced, I would think. No? Well, that's, you know, that's a big problem. Uh, and you, you see that manifest in New York City. You know, it, it's like the the – so there's no – there's no anticipation of the need for retrofit in the design of the curtain wall system. I have yet to, to find one 
uh, that has been designed to accommodate future ret- retrofit, in spite of the fact that, you know, even with the facade systems that we're building today, they're, they do not meet the requirements for these, uh, you know, energy and sustainability and, you know, net zero carbon goals that we have in place for 2030, 2040, 2050. They're going to have to be retrofit, you know, no question about it. But, the, you know, we're failing to anticipate and design appropriately, appropriately for that to accommodate that. So what what basically has been going on? So I've been, you know active uh a lot of my career in the you know on the facade contracting side um you know with curtain wall systems and you know what we do is we sell them to the building owners as zero maintenance systems right and that's exactly what the building owner wants to hear which is why we sell them that way uh and what it really means is that they're not maintainable right it just they they're gonna they're gonna work until they don't work anymore and then there's no way to to repair them you basically there are very few options you have to tear them off the building and put a new one up at at great expense uh to the building owner and and even more i think um importantly at at significant disruption to ongoing building operations which can can far outstrip the cost of the facade replacement so really, what's interesting here is the play on words, and I really appreciate that, uh, Mick. Is that uh, would you say that uh, that's being sold as being zero maintenance? It's not because there's no maintenance required; it's because you can't maintain it, so you'll never ever maintain it. And that's exactly why zero maintenance. And you kind of look and you go, "That should tell you something right up front." Whenever anybody uses that term, what it really means is you ain't doing nothing to this thing. Uh, you're, you, have a you leave it or you tear it off and put it in. But I would argue that the, the sealed units are, you know, they're likely not going to last you the 50 or 60 years. So you're going to be at least replacing IGUs, uh, yes. sealed units, every, you know, 35 years or whatever, whatever the number right. is, right? So uh, even uh, even though you're building it as maintenance-free, there's always going to be some maintenance. Right. Well, the, I mean, that, but that's a problem too, right? I mean, uh, I learned from, you know, studying Ted's work uh, about the weakest link and, you know, in in a durability assessment uh, in an assembly. And if you look at a curtain wall uh, system, the weakest link is it's it's funny because, you know, if you look at the embodied carbon aspect of this, which is directly related to this conversation of durability, the embodied carbon is primarily in, you know, in the typical curtain wall system, it's in the aluminum and in the glass. These are the Mm -hmm. high embodied carbon materials. The, the, and, you know, in my, uh, in, in my research in a vanilla type curtain wall, that turned out to be at about 93% of the embodied carbon. Whereas the rest of it is the sealants, the seals, you know, that kind of stuff. So these are the, the relatively low embodied carbon footprint, but they are the weak link in the system, right? So, you know, like, look with, look, look at what, what you have with an insulated glass unit. You've got glass, uh, fla- uh, float glass, which will last forever in the building envelope until it's broken or something. Uh, and and it's infinitely recyclable and all that stuff. And then you, you make an IGU out of it to improve the energy performance, and you collapse that durability down from indefinite to, you know, like a 25, 30 year time frame, and you make it unrecyclable in, in the process. And then we call it high performance glazing. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to ask this of Jen. Uh, what, what, what is sort of at the high end of high performance enclosure systems in New York City? What have you seen 
people uh, look to do to get like the, the best environmental performance out of their glazing system. I'm talking now uh, energy efficiency. Yeah. So, um, you know, right now the trend is here is passive house. Right. And, uh, you know, it's actually um, pretty interesting. So, um, you know, one passive house project that um, we've worked on, um, you know, it's a mega panel type um, system. Right. Um, You know, six inch structural stud unitized um, with sheathing, uh, lots of mineral insulation and then a rain screen in front of it. Right. So for that type of system, it's really just packing the cavity of the system with as much insulation as possible. So I think for that project, we had like six inches of mineral wool within the, between the studs and then maybe another four or five outboard of it. But there was still at the edges of the panel, we were still seeing big thermal, um, uh, reductions. Uh, so in the middle of the panel, we were getting about an R30 or R40, but at the edges of the panel, because of all the thermal bridging, we were getting like an R4 or R5, right? And it's you know a little bit inevitable because, you know, the, the panel itself needs to be terminated. Um, you know, we were using thermally broken profiles, but still seeing a big re- um, reduction in the performance. So like we were, um, when we talk about unitized systems, it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit limiting in terms of what can be done thermally. You know, of course, there's triple pane, spacers, double, uh, multiple low E coatings. Um, but when you look at like the frame of the curtain wall and, you know, how it comes together and then, you know, if you're talking about structurally glazed systems, there's really not that, you know, like there's not that much that's being done to improve the thermal performance of the curtain wall frames other than, you know, bigger thermal breaks. <laughs> right. um, and then, you know, you have back pans, um, you know, the, the, the metal back pan where you have opaque spandrel areas. So, you know, adding thermal breaks here and there to reduce the amount of thermal bridging. But like there's just so much heat loss going through the mullion and you know the the edge of the glass that it's like there's only so much you can do and there's only so much um as so low that you can go with the u values before you know it gets unachievable so like oftentimes you know from the inside we often have to add you know basically wrap the mullions with insulation in order to I mean, like when we do that, I think honestly, it's a double-edged sword because we're trying to drive down the U values uh, by wrapping the inside of emollients, but then you're keeping the emollients colder, right? Mm-hmm. And whereas you want to keep them warmer to, you know, deal with, you know, potential condensation issues. Right. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of what we have to deal with. But, but, you know, amazingly enough, the passive house, um, you know, we've done a few passive house projects to date and, um, you know, our, our building code in terms of energy code has gotten pretty close to what, to basically the U value requirements of passive house. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's not really for envelopes specifically, it's not really that far off, but the industry has a long way to go to, um, you know, to meet those requirements. And we're getting real diminishing returns on, you know, on increasingly high performance glazing, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. we, we've done about as much as we can with the glass, 
uh, we got to deal with the, you know, with the framing systems, the intersection between the units and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Let me ask a question here. Uh, um, I want to, I, I want you guys to provide. So, you know, one of the interesting things to me is that this dialogue on durability is not happening in the United States at this point. Okay. And I, you know, in terms of context for, you know, Ted, you and Dave, um, it's just not discussed. And, you know, one thing that is discussed, uh, you know, relatively recently, big embodied carbon focus, right? All over, everybody's talking embodied carbon all of a sudden. Uh, and, you know, there's a, a distinct relationship between embodied carbon and durability because, you know, uh, the two primary ways to reduce embodied carbon are, you know, careful material selection and then extending service life, right? Because, I mean, you know, more or less, if you double the service life, you uh, have the embodied carbon footprint. So there's a relationship there, but nobody's talking about that. Uh, so you guys, so one, one of the things that that knocked me out uh, in my research, early research, and this goes back, I don't know, 10 years ago or, or something, I stumbled across uh, the... Um, an earlier version of CSA S-478, the, this durability standard that you guys mentioned, but it's not familiar in the U.S. And it's a very sophisticated document. And, you know, the kind of thing that you're talking about, Dave, durability planning, design a systems, design the system so that if it does fail, there's a relatively easy way to repair it, right? Like with right. you've got the thing designed so that you can add a, a second seal to it. So uh, can you guys... Can you guys talk a little bit about uh, this S-478, what it what it does? It's now, uh, I think, um, becoming part of the code itself, right? Like a mandatory part Not of the yet. code or something? Not yet. So it, it was issued in 2019 as a standard, which took over for the earlier guideline. It's not yet referenced by our, by our building code, but because it's out there, building owners can use it in their requests for proposals in their owner requirements and tell design teams and contracting teams that yeah this is what we're this is important to me and this is what we're going to do uh, for this building so you know we have here infrastructure ontario which does a lot of the public buildings the hospitals and so forth and i fully expect them if they're not already referencing that standard and me and and getting people to adhere to the standard there's other you know toronto community housing another government agency here which i'm you know, expecting is going to adopt it as well. So I, usually the government agencies take the lead and they're the ones that first are using and specifying these documents. So the document is available. It's available to be specified uh, for the owners that want it, but it's not yet a building code requirement because it hasn't yet been adopted by the building code. I see. So, uh, so, and there's a part of this is, is it calls for uh, a durability plan as part of the building design, right? Correct. Correct. And the durability plan would include all of the, you know, there's, uh, you know, tables in the back that give guidance in terms of how the, uh, you know, the, you know, selection of the design service life for the building. And then you list all of your building envelope components. So all your assemblies all broken down by component. And then you you have to have a, a predicted service life for you know there's a predicted service life and then you have to have a demonstrated service life uh or or a way to demonstrate that the component that you selected is going to uh meet that predicted service life so there could either be through past experience through testing through modeling there's a bunch of different scenarios that can be used to 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 have that demonstrated service life meets the predicted service life 
And then on yeah. top of that, that's just, you know, going through the different elements and so forth. But the durability plan also has to include all of the quality assurance measures that are going to be used on the project. So there's some flexibility there. There's some general language in terms of what's required. But, you know, that story that I gave you, the, the M&M detail where we went in there and water tested, you know, all that very complex detail, that would be the type of thing that would end up in the building durability plan as well. All of, you know, maybe plant reviews while the glazing systems are being manufactured in the shop, uh, site reviews, mock-ups, testing, anything that is planned by the team has to end up in that durability plan. Yeah. Ted, I want to ask you, Ted, uh, you know, we already did a podcast on resilience, which was great. Uh, but, but one of the great things that, you know, that I think is at the heart of this durability discussion uh, is that, you know, you have said that durability is a prere- prerequisite to resilience in buildings. Uh, can you talk about the, the, the linkage between resilience and durability a little bit? Well, I just think that, um, you know, if you, if you're going to have uh, building systems that don't, get to the end of their useful useful life or that they have some weak link then chances are you're going to see those types of failures occur in particular during extreme weather events uh and uh so so that becomes then then what i would term a failure in the system and and so so you know at the end of the day if you want something to be resilient, it's got to be resilient over the service life of the building, whatever that happens to be. And if you have weak links, then that's dangerous. And anybody that, that you know has ever had to tow something with a chain knows that the weak link, if it breaks, then that, that you're done. You're cooked. And I, I think just to touch on what was being discussed earlier, the, the, C, the reason I think the CSA um, uh, S478 standard is such a milestone is that it's really talking about how we should have always been thinking about the design of our buildings. It, it really is an ideal. I know that people haven't warmed up to it yet. And I think the reason is, is that we don't know if the industry has the capacity yet to be able to uh, and I think that's why some of the government projects are going to start adopting it first. But when it becomes mandatory in the code to the point where a building owner can say, hey, you were supposed to design this according to CSAF S478 uh, and it's actually in the building code. Therefore, you know, you're uh, you're um, uh, liable uh, because uh, you've been negligent in doing that properly. I think that right now, if we were to make it so, most better than 90% of the industry wouldn't be able to cope with this. This is, um, I mean, and and again, I'm saying this uh, uh, honestly, I'm not being, uh, I'm not flattering anyone, but, but um, organizations like uh, Synergy where, where Dave is a managing principal, they've been advocating for this for a long time. And this is really industry best practice. And, And what we have to see is, is that becoming normative practice so that we understand and we can very reliably achieve a good uh, value for the dollar because that that's the one place where what we're finding is is that people are not getting value for dollar for a lot of the new construction that's going on in Canada. I imagine it must be the same in the U.S., but you hear a lot of people saying, man, uh, you know, this building costs a lot of money and it has a lot of problems and there's a lot of stuff that's screwing up on this building and, um, uh, and that includes the facade. And, and people say, well, why is it that our buildings are getting more and more and more expensive and their performance is getting worse and worse? I mean, if we look back to the 1970s, 
when when the Japanese automobile industry almost took out the North Americans, it did so because of this phenomenal level of quality assurance that it brought to its products and consistency of performance and excellent durability. And uh, it took a while for the uh, U.S. auto industry, along with Canada, because we do manufacture cars here as well, to catch up. And uh, we, we almost didn't. And so... I'm not saying the same thing is going to happen to buildings, but but the point is is that as a society, I think we're spending a lot more money on buildings than we're getting value for, and I think that means that we don't have money for other things, obviously, like education and healthcare and so on. So 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 the, the, this I think is a, a really deep issue, and that that's why the durability thing for me has always been sort of uh, front uh, and center in terms of how we approach it. Can I add something to that resilience discussion that, that Mick started along? Sure. Yeah, so in, in CSAS 478, one of the, the perspectives offered in the standard as well is that it's, uh, you know, I started going down the road, I think, before earlier talking about this, but it's, it's no longer uh, recommended to just look backwards. And, you know, most of our building codes are based on, let's say, the, you know, past 30 years worth of, uh, you know, climate data or whatever. So we have to start looking forward. Because if you're going to build something that's durable, we have to anticipate where we're, where we're going, where we're headed. Because if the only way to build a durable assembly, let's say, is to anticipate what those changes are going to be and to accommodate them. So, for instance, in our annex in, in the standard, we have, you know, for different cities where the temperatures are headed. You know, we know we're going to have higher temperature ranges to deal with. We know we're going to have higher levels of UV to deal with. And we know we're going to have higher levels of wind-driven rains to deal with. So the one of the annexes in the standard gives suggestions and, and guidance to the designer in terms of how to deal with the with this changing climate and this, you know, being resilient and dealing with some of these weather events. Uh, we know we're going to have increased winds, wind-driven rain loads. So, for instance, in, the, in terms of the higher temperatures ranges, so why don't we use materials or select materials that have, you know, uh, higher, sorry, lower coefficients of a thermal expansion, you know, low modulus, you know, sealants and so forth that can take that extra movement or ultra low modulus sealants. Why don't we start selecting materials that are more UV resistant? Uh, why don't we use strategies like subsoil flashings underneath all of our windows so that if our windows ever leak, they don't leak into our wall. They leak onto the subsoil flashing and back to the exterior. So there's a whole annex filled of suggestions on how to deal with anticipated changes from climate change. Yeah, I think this stuff is is really extremely important. But let me ask you guys another thing. So we've been talking primarily about, uh, I think, uh, at least it sounds like to me, forces of degradation. Um, and there's a lot of buildings. If I if I understand correctly, uh, and I could be wrong about this, but I, I think most buildings become obsolete. So there's this issue of obsolescence, right, which you know, has not been, I don't think, really well studied, well researched in buildings. It's been very well researched in consumer products and the concept of um, planned obsolescence was developed there. Uh, but um, it, it's less a, a part of the dialogue when it comes to buildings. But, you know, my understanding is that buildings die uh, more often because of some other kind of obsolescence than uh, than than. Uh, degradation, right? It, there's, you know, there's there there can be technical obsolescence, social obsolescence. Uh, you know, there there are 
you know, this this has I, I have seen this studied with buildings, various forms of obsolescence. You know, what we find is that even with the buildings like that were built in the mid-century, the early tall curtain wall buildings, they lack adaptive capacity. They're not they're not easily adapted to these accelerating ch- changes like social change, technological change, you know, this kind of thing. So talk about what do you guys think of the linkage between durability and, and adaptability? How important is it to design for adaptability in, in buildings and facade systems? If I can just start it out, I, it's, it's a discussion that I always have because, you know, I had students of mine that took an interest in this in some of the case studies that they did in, in, in early years of my teaching where I set up certain things. And so they started to look at, at different building types from that perspective. When you look at the old industrial buildings that we have in Toronto that were built uh, around the turn of the um, uh, 20th century or, or towards the end of the 19th century, so these are the Victorian uh, brick and beam buildings that have uh, punched windows, solid masonry walls. There's no insulation. The The windows are uh, steel with a single pane of glass, steel frame. And um, But those buildings, they were built like a long, long time ago. And uh, But they, they get converted into everything from lofts to offices to you name it. Unbelievable. They have this life. They just don't want to die. And uh, one of the things that's interesting about their facade systems, besides the fact that Many of them were constructed or designed and designed in the absence of electric lighting. So they were really, they actually did daylighting really well because they had to, um, and also natural ventilation. But the uh, thing that was uh, fa- fascinating is that they always end up having punched windows and solid masonry wall in between. And that means that you can subdivide the space very easily. When you want to subdivide the space, you basically you know, put up a, f- a firewall that goes right up to the solid masonry wall. And now you can divide it into different occupancies, like a bunch of different suites if you're going to convert it into lofts, a bunch of different offices. One of the things that's always amazed me about curtain wall is, like, how do you subdivide in, in, in any way, meaningful way? Is there, is there a way of doing it? Is, is it something we should be thinking of? So I just wanted to throw that on the table in, in the, what I call the obsolescence discussion. What kind of facade systems are more in tune with being able to repurposing the building? Yeah, right now, not many. You know, Mick, you said social and technical obsolescence, right? I mean, I would say, you know, commercial obsolescence is a big one that, you know, we see yeah. a lot, right? So, you know, office, you know, the office market is pretty cutthroat here. And, you know, everybody's uh, many times the um, uh, developers, you know, are you know, upgrade, feel the need to upgrade their buildings in order to have that, offer that class A space, right? And, you know, the punched punched window in the precast opening, you know, might might be a little bit um, dated. And so they want to have all glass, you know, unitized curtain wall, right? But I mean, yeah, for, for us, I mean, it's really not not too many of the systems that, we deal with, I would say, are very, can really be adapted. Um, and, you know, in the reclads and overclads that we've, we've worked on recently, it's really, you know, removing, there's a few scenarios, right? But removing the entire cladding so that you're basically exposing the structure of the building so that you, you can attach your new veneer to, or, you know, removing or you know, removing some of the veneer 
and then overcladding it or recladding it with a different type of like a rain screen material. You know, so you could be like, I don't like removing face brick and recladding it or overcladding it with terracotta, for example. You know, so like really the system and, you know, to be honest, I feel like the question of adapt adaptability, it's not, it's, it's not discussed, you know, when we design these facades and, you know, people on the development side don't, aren't really interested in talking about, you know, what, how to maintain the facade, you know, 20, 30 years when they're no longer working for this company, you know, and yeah. like the VE, you know, the VE is really kind of like the, um, after design VE is, I, I mean, I find like almost always coming into play, right. What can be VE'd out. And, you mm-hmm. know, I feel like if we did actually try to design these additional kind of like belts and suspenders, um, into the system and kind of explain to them the rationale behind adding these things. I feel like, you know, they would, they would probably challenge, uh, those, those decisions. Right. Primarily because it's hard to do it without some kind of cost premium involved. Uh, right. right. That's where you're going to get the most pushback right away. Right. All right. So I, you know, I'm still working on some institutional type facilities that believe it or not have some cavity walls with, you know, brick on the outside block on the inside. And I would say those types of uh, buildings would lend themselves well to to, to adapting to to a different uh, uh, configuration. The other the other trend I'm seeing with some developers is using uh, precast concrete panels, but in order to make them look a lot nicer, is to have the brick slips embedded right into the concrete. So I've done a few of those. Looks looks like a brick building, but it's not. Big precast panels with punched windows in them, and I think that would lend itself well to to adapting to something different. And then the last one I want to say, just to tie in one of the other things that uh, Mick was talking about in terms of low embodied energy, one of the other trends we're seeing here is the large format panels with cross laminated timber backing. So rather than having a steel stud backup wall with sheathing and membrane insulation, we're having CLT backup wall with you know membrane and then insulation, fiberglass clips and a cladding type system. And I think that's a, a scenario again where you have punched windows in a larger type format panel. Uh, in terms of some of the joints we're seeing on those panels are, you know, silicone strips that if you take the cladding off are easily accessible for, for repair and replacement. So I think that one ticks a lot of boxes because it's it, it could be adaptable. It's low embodied uh, carbon. It's uh, a high uh, thermal performance. It's, it's punched windows. So it's, you know, much smaller windows. So it allows you to have those higher a total effective thermal performance or values. It's easily, it's easier to to get at and fix some of the joints. So that's where I, I get excited about those types of panels because I think that, like I said, it ticks a lot of boxes, and uh, and I think it bodes well. That's interesting. Okay, listen, I got We're getting close to being needing to wrap this up, but I've got a, a final question, and I want to throw out to you guys, Dave. You talked about um, you, you contextualized this issue of how long should a building and a facade system last and i want to revisit this i want to i want to ask you guys if you if you think that there's a possibility that we are just off by an order of magnitude in the way that we think about how long a building should last <laughs> i mean I, i'm thinking uh, i can easily imagine a time you know in the future and the not too distant future where you know circumstances have conspired uh, such that we don't have the uh, economic wherewithal to do large-scale 
renovation on buildings, right? Uh, we've had a hard enough time doing it during the commercial boom of, of the past decade in New York City. There's still a whole lot of buildings that have not been, that need facade renovation that haven't received it because of the cost and disruption that's involved in accommodating that. So, you know, I did research, you know, on this, on attitudes out there and and expressions in the literature uh, that ranged for buildings from 20 to 30 years to indefinitely, you know, uh, and with facade systems from 20 years to 50 years. 50 years was the longest I saw uh, that I was able to find for uh, the length of, a, of the facade system. And, and you know, I've, I've thought a lot about this indefinitely thing, right? That they should last until we're done with them. This is what um, uh, Anthony Wood, the, the, the uh, uh, general uh, or what is he, the managing guy for the Council for Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat, uh, you know, says said buildings. It's not a hundred years. It's not three hundred years. It's not a thousand years. They should last until we're done with them. Which is an entirely different notion of. It makes it makes the notion of service life irrelevant, right? Because you could have a building or an assembly that was in service indefinitely. You know, potentially for hundreds, thousands of years. But at the end of of whatever time period you select, there could not be an original component in there. Right. <laughs> Everything could have been changed out, including potentially even the structural system of the building. Right. I mean, it's not not out of the question to, you know, to to design that way. So, you know, my going back to my question, do you think that we're just really underthinking this, you know, this whole uh, how long these things should last, how we should be. I mean, if you if you adopt that, it changes everything, right? I mean, it certainly changes the way we design our buildings and our facade systems. I definitely think we're underthinking it. But, you know, the approach we took when we wrote the standard is, is you know, at the end of the day, it kind of depends. It does depend on, you know, the different categories we have, what the use is going to be for the building, uh, what the owner's objectives are. At the end of the day, it does depend on those factors. So that's why we had minimum requirements for each of the different categories. But if you ask me as a building scientist, what I think, absolutely. You know, for a long life building, we have a 50 to 100 year range. Absolutely. I would I would I would want to expect that our buildings and our facades would last closer to the either the higher end of that range or as a minimum have elements that are easily accessible for replacement so you can have more of that you know that that link to what you were talking about in terms of you know that indefinite service life because if i can easily swap stuff out then yeah then i then i can get closer to that to that you know holy grail in terms of what you're looking for in terms of having something that's indefinite yeah i'm I'm really concerned that we're that we're you know with the buildings that we're building today we're burdening future generations with absolutely i am doing a talk wednesday at uh uh, our, our Ontario Building Envelope Council. And one of the slides I have in there is, you know, Ted did a great job of a tower renewal guideline. Uh, how many years ago was that, Ted? Was that six, seven years ago that you issued that or a little more? Or 2009. 2009. And that was really meant to renew a lot of our towers. You know, our, our towers built in the 60s and 70s in the city. And, that, you know, I'm going to put something out there on, on Wednesday when I'm speaking that I think we need a new tower renewal guideline for all the buildings we built in the last decade. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, that that work that Ted did there was absolutely brilliant. I, I that was a great study. But here's the thing too, I keep thinking about this and that is sometimes I think that we the reason we end up in this conundrum with building enclosures, facade systems is because of the weird typologies like 
And it's again, I'm not, I'm not uh, a fundamentalist, and I don't want people to think that I have these absolute ideas of things because I don't. But at the same time, it seems to me that we put a lot of effort into technical effort into like tall buildings, and and they pose special challenges, and a lot of them deal with accessibility, obviously. And and you realize that you know if if we picked more rational building typologies and if we didn't build as high as we did and and there are many parts of the world where they do not build tall buildings and yet they have tremendous population densities many of the european cities don't have big tall buildings and yet they 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 have good good densities urban densities so i just keep thinking man if we you know kept it down to between eight and twelve stories we, there's so many things we can do that that would make more sense and that would be you know more cost effective, and then there's uh, there's there's this whole thing about building these crazy buildings and so it's not just a facade system. I always can't believe how inefficient the uh, utilization is of space in, for example, tall buildings. Like the core takes up so such a large percent. If you took that much percentage out of out of your house, you know, you'd only end up with about uh, two thirds of your house that you could use. And the rest would be killed with uh, hallways and circulation spaces and all this kind of stuff, and it, and you know it, it it just doesn't make sense. So I think on a number of levels, maybe the other thing that's going to happen over time is we will rethink uh, the building typologies that we have, what makes sense, and 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 maybe historically, maybe a hundred years from now, people will look and they'll say there was a time when it was like a real fad and people used to build these really tall towers, but we realize now it's not really a good way to go. Yeah, right. Ted, it's not just the fad that we're building tall towers. The problem now is we're stacking buildings on top of each other. We're stacking, you know, three stories of retail on the bottom, sorry, eight-story parking garage. Then we have a three-story retail. Then we have a 12-story hotel. And then we have a 40-story condo on top of that. I know. And that's that's presenting so many challenges, like especially in cold climates, stack effect issues and moisture issues. It's like, yeah, I'm with you. We got to rethink these tall buildings. Does the uh, multi-unit residential buildings that were the subject of that that study that you did, Ted? Those seem to be pretty adaptable. Well, again, they were they were built, you know, uh, overbuilt. Actually, uh, the the estimates that we got on the service life of the of the structure, for example, because they didn't have uh, very good limit states design knowledge at that time, so they tended to be conservative, and they put in a little bit more rebar, and then they wanted them to go up fast, so they put in a little more cement when they were making up their concrete mixes. So they have uh, the armature, the frame. It's probably good for 500 years or something before any form of severe creep enters into the equation. So, so you got 500 years, and then uh, they they basically had uh, masonry walls, backup walls, and then punched windows. So yeah, th- those things you can rebuild them, and, and and you can get at almost the entire enclosure without having to to get rid of the people that live inside. I mean, in one way they didn't realize it, but they were building something that was actually meant to be perpetually retrofit and then the question becomes well how do we do that but then none of them really go beyond 20 stories in other words it's still quite manageable um Mm -hmm. they certainly don't have all these floors of retail below and (laughs) eight stories of underground parking what (laughs) they're describing is you know really just unnecessarily complicating things in ways that uh it's almost impossible for modern building science to really come up with acceptable solutions Right. 
So Jen, are you uh, are you ready to go back uh, to your uh, colleagues at Videris and propose that uh, you guys all get together and design a, a facade system for perpetual service life? <laughs> yeah, I think we need to design that um, you know, internally and vet it through a few channels before we present that. <laughs> Well, if you do it, let me know. I'd love to be uh, a fly on the wall for that uh, enterprise. Okay, so listen, everybody, this has been a great dialogue. I want to, as always, um, thank my co-host, Ted Kessick. Uh, I want to thank Jennifer C. with Federis and David DeRose with um, Synergy Partners. So you guys were great. There's a lot more to talk about. I'm up for revisiting this uh, at, at some point in the near future if you guys are up for it, so. Absolutely, I'm always game. Okay, good deal. <laughs> All right, thanks, Dad. Thanks, everybody. 